Hello, I'm Matt, and this is Ghostthropology. The show will feature ghost folklore, which includes both well-known stories and small personal encounters, all ultimately unverifiable, but all presented by people as true. I will tell you the story, after which I will discuss the elements of the story that I think are particularly interesting. While I don't know when, where, or how you were listening to this, I hope it's dark outside, as that is the best time for ghost stories. Episode 36, The LaLaurie House, New Orleans On the night of April 10th, 1834, the LaLaurie House, a large mansion in the French Quarter built and owned by Delphine LaLaurie and her most recent husband, a doctor said to be 25 years younger than her, caught fire. When firefighters and local citizens arrived with the intention of putting out the blaze, LaLaurie tried to prevent them from entering the house. Strange behavior given that one would assume she would want her house to be saved. Moreover, much of Delphine LaLaurie's property was in the house, including furniture, art, jewelry, and, of course, slaves. All of these were valuable, and it would seem that LaLaurie would want them preserved, for financial reasons if nothing else. And yet, there was Madame LaLaurie insisting that everyone should leave her house be, even as it burned. It's not entirely clear why the firefighters in the crowd disobeyed her. Perhaps they were worried about the fire spreading to other structures in the neighborhood. Perhaps they thought that Madame LaLaurie was not in her right mind and would be grateful when whatever madness that was gripping her had passed. Perhaps they were even moved to action by the cries for help of the enslaved people trapped within the house. Regardless of the reason, the firefighters and locals who were trying to help pushed past Delphine LaLaurie and entered her home to save what they could and try to put out the fire if possible. What they found inside was truly disturbing. Inside was an enslaved woman chained to the stove, her skin chafed from her shackles. The woman had been the one to start the fire. She knew that the blaze might kill her, but that would be a form of freedom from LaLaurie's cruelty. She also knew that if the fire was put out, she would likely be rescued from this house and the abuse of her mistress. In her desperation, she had gambled that release from torment was attainable, even if it meant her death. Those who rescued her from the kitchen soon saw what she had been so frightened of. Throughout the house, there was evidence of abuse of the slaves kept by LaLaurie. Although the specifics are different in every telling, what can be confirmed is that LaLaurie beat and harmed those owned by her in a way that was not allowed under the Code Noir, the French-derived legal code that governed the rights of the enslaved and the limits of what could be done to them. People had been chained up and beaten for longer and more severely than was legally allowed, often for minimal cause, showing that Delphine LaLaurie was as capricious as she was cruel. Some stories go well beyond that, claiming that Madame LaLaurie would engage in the mutilation of living people, such as sewing their mouths shut, severing limbs, cutting off or otherwise damaging their genitals, and sometimes even sewing body parts that had been removed onto another part of the body or onto somebody else's body. These tellings often describe such activities as primitive scientific experiments, turning LaLaurie into the Dr. Frankenstein of the Mississippi Delta. Some tales also hold that others in the household, especially young enslaved women, had been cut or even killed in order to obtain their blood, which LaLaurie would use in an attempt to rejuvenate her aging skin in a manner nearly identical to what is said to have been done by the medieval Hungarian Countess Elizabeth Bathory. 
Whatever the conditions of the still living people within the house, there were also the bodies of those who had died but not yet been buried. Those who had come to assist with the fire saw evidence of all of this. What they didn't see was that, that very morning, Madame Lalaurie had buried twelve slaves alive underneath the floorboards, something that was only discovered later. Though it is said that on that fateful day, those entering the house heard voices speaking a language that they could not recognize. They assumed that there were demons in the home. It wasn't until much later that they realized that the voices belonged to men who, having been recently brought into the country illegally, did not speak English, French, or Spanish, and were calling for help. Still, what the crowd did see turned them against LaLaurie. The people of New Orleans were well accustomed to slavery, and abuse of slaves was not uncommon. But, as the stories claim, there were limits. Madame Delphine LaLaurie had stepped well beyond those limits. The crowd was enraged and looked ready to exact justice. They ransacked the house, freeing those they chained up inside and taking what they wanted of LaLaurie's possessions. But, just as they were preparing to punish Madame LaLaurie in a more direct and physical way, her loyal black coachman, a fit and healthy man, clearly one who had not been abused and neglected, unlike the others held in bondage in the home, drove the carriage to LaLaurie and spirited her away to a ship waiting at the docks of Lake Pontchartrain. Eventually, she and her husband, and possibly the coachman, made it to France, where they lived for a number of years before Delphine was killed by a wild boar during a hunting accident. Though the crowd was shocked by what they had seen in the LaLaurie house, perhaps they shouldn't have been. There had been a criminal investigation into LaLaurie's treatment of slaves in the late 1820s, so at least five years earlier, which appears to have resulted in her selling six slaves in an attempt to prevent further accusations. A common element in tellings of the LaLaurie story is that one of the young women, sometimes even said to have been a child, enslaved by LaLaurie, had been brushing her mistress's hair when she accidentally pulled on a tangle, causing momentary pain. This so enraged LaLaurie that she decided to savagely beat the young woman, chasing her to the roof of her house, where LaLaurie beat her with a whip, and the young woman either jumped or was pushed into the courtyard below, where she died on impact. There was, it appears, good reason to suspect that Madame LaLaurie was abusive even before the fire, but this all appeared to go without comment from local society. But of course, LaLaurie fleeing New Orleans, and even her death, is not the end of the story. It is often said that the house was repaired, though the Preservation Resource Center of New Orleans is clear that a new house was built on the spot for Charles Cafin in 1838. The new building was three stories tall, unlike the two-story LaLaurie home, a fact that is important as the attic is often said to be the site of the most severe supernatural activity, despite the attic being higher than the height of the original building. During the post-Civil War reconstruction, this new house was turned into a racially integrated school. It later served as a conservatory of music in the 1880s and was converted into apartments for a time around the turn of the 20th century. Between 1923 and 1932, it was a home for indigent men. In the book Weird Hauntings, Joanne Austin states that the home gained a reputation for being haunted immediately upon abandonment. However, it is difficult to know if the tales Austin describes date to the 1830s and 1840s, or if they are later additions. Regardless, by the 1880s, if not earlier, the home had gained a reputation for being haunted. The 1885 Historical Sketchbook and Guide to New Orleans referred to it as a haunted house. 
1888, George Washington Cable included stories of the house in his book, Strange True Tales of Louisiana, and the house has become a fixture of American ghost folklore ever since. The paranormal happenings said to occur within the building are varied. Some link things that are not necessarily supernatural in nature, such as a murder said to have occurred during the period when the building was being used as apartments. Even earlier, some accounts hold that vagrants who stayed in the burnt-out remnants of the house seeking shelter vanished, never to be seen again. Whether these wanderers were victims of crime or victims of something unnatural is not known. But many of the stories are unambiguously of a ghostly variety. Prior to Charles Caffin having built his house on the spot, it is said that people could both see apparitions wandering the grounds and sometimes hear wailing and screaming coming from the house's ruins. Young women and girls who attended the integrated school are said to have been subject to beatings from unseen hands and whippings from unseen implements. Many who stayed in the building during its various uses are said to have been chased by a shadowy form brandishing a whip. Some of the students of the conservatory, and eventually residents of the apartments, reported seeing other shadowy figures moving through the building. One man who lived in the apartments claimed to have been attacked by a naked black man in chains who promptly vanished before the eyes of the frightened tenant. Perhaps worse than the visions and even the physical interactions are the sounds. Chains are often heard being dragged through the halls and up the stairs, as if to indicate the presence of those enslaved and kept chained up by Lalori. Anguished cries are heard coming from the attic, where most stories hold that slaves were chained and tortured, though, again, the current attic was not part of the original building. Madame LaLaurie herself is said to appear and menace those who see her, her malice towards the living apparently enhanced by her death. The cries of a young woman are often reported near a cherub fountain in the courtyard, presumably those of the girl who fell to her death after yanking a tangle in the madam's hair. Commentary I'm not sure where I first learned of the LaLaurie Mansion, but I know it was a story I was well acquainted with when I started high school in 1990, so I must have learned of it sometime in the late 1980s. It's a story that fascinates people as much for the gruesome details as the paranormal claims, and it is a story that tells us much about how we create history through our own modern interests and perspectives. This story is embedded in the American public consciousness. It is one of the ghost stories that anyone interested in American ghost folklore will come across, whether you are looking for it or not. Interestingly, while most of the tales of haunted homes have largely fictionalized backstories, this one has a lot of truth to it. Most tellings are sensationalized, certainly, and many details are off or even fabricated, but the basic set of events typically recounted appears to be more or less true. However, the truly terrifying thing about the story isn't the extreme nature of the treatment of the enslaved members of the household, but rather how, frankly, mundane much of that sort of treatment likely was at the time. Madame LaLaurie is often held up as being inhumanly monstrous, wicked, and cruel. She was, indeed, monstrous, wicked, and cruel, but the folklore tends to create false barriers around her that separate her from the rest of New Orleans society. So the appellation of inhumanly is actually the truly false part of this tale. She was, in many respects, a typical slave owner. Delphine LaLaurie was a Creole woman. Now, the term Creole is a bit confusing. Typically, it means someone descended from French settlers, but with a mix of different racial groups in their ancestry. 
Indeed, the term creolization is often used in anthropology to indicate the mixing of cultural groups at boundaries or frontiers between those groups. In the area around New Orleans, and in other parts of the Deep South, it can refer to mixed-race people, but it is also used to indicate someone who is probably of purely European ancestry, but descended directly from French or Spanish settlers, and not from the later Anglo settlers who came from the North. Regardless, Delphine Lalaurie was born as Marie Delphine McCarty, and grew up in the large McCarty plantation outside of New Orleans. She was born into wealth during the Spanish colonial period, which followed the French colonial period. She was married three times, widowed twice, and her third husband, a doctor named Leonard Louis Nicolas Lalaurie, was significantly younger than Delphine. The timing and circumstances of her death are uncertain. The claim that she was killed by a boar came from a rather sensationalized account of her life and the events of 1834. A plaque found in the St. Louis Cemetery in New Orleans indicates that she died in Paris in 1842 at the age of 55, while records in France indicate that she died in 1849 at the age of 62. Depending on the state of the body when it was shipped back to New Orleans, it is entirely possible that she died in 1849 and the plaque was given the wrong date, but it is also possible that the records in Paris are mistaken. My own inclination is to trust the Parisian records, but there's no guarantee that they are correct. Historian Tia Miles found that newspaper accounts attest to the discovery of abuse in the Lori home, the crowd becoming enraged, and the mob ransacking the house. That much appears to be true. Where we start to deviate from reality is in both the claim that Lori's treatment of enslaved servants was outside the norm, and in the question of whether or not her cruelty was known by those outside of the household. So let's talk about how we got here. Now, I mentioned Tia Miles, and I'm going to be depending a lot on her book, Tales from the Haunted South, for this discussion, as it provides both an excellent discussion of the real history, as opposed to the urban legends around Delphine LaLaurie, and because she provides a discussion of the context in which the stories are currently told. So if you find what I say in this episode interesting, I recommend getting your hands on the book, which will be referenced in the show notes. It is well known that the American South was built on slavery. This is just a fact of history. Plantations could not have existed in the form that they took without this enslaved pool of workers. Now, Louisiana, including New Orleans, was a colony of France from around 1718 to 1763, when the Spanish gained control, before it was returned to the French control in 1802 and then sold to the United States in 1803. Of course, there were native ethnolinguistic groups in the area already, each with its own social and political structure, but I suspect that the plantation owners, such as the McCarty family, gave them less thought than they gave to the French and Spanish authorities. As a colony originally of France, the Louisiana Territory was subject to the Code Noir, the French laws that governed slavery within the French Empire, as well as the treatment of people of African descent. Miles reports that, in her time spent in New Orleans, it was often brought up the Code Noir protected slaves from the worst abuses that were dealt out routinely in places that had not been subject to French rule. When the Spanish took control of Louisiana, they replaced the French law with Spanish law which was more lenient towards slaves than the Code Noir had been. Eventually, when Louisiana became part of the United States, the territory of Louisiana passed a law known as the Black Code, based on the French Code Noir, reinstating many of its provisions. A lot of modern discussion of slavery in and around New Orleans focuses on the Code Noir and the Spanish laws, specifically how they'd led to a better life for the enslaved than laws in other parts of the Americas. 
In this area, slaves were allowed to marry, allowed to be recognized as Christians and buried in hallowed ground, and even allowed to take Sundays off. Under Spanish law, in the second half of the 18th century, a slave could even buy their own freedom if they saved the money. But this is a complicated matter. Even when the laws were strictly enforced, they still allowed treatments and punishments of slaves that we would today consider cruel and inhumane. The same laws also further constricted the rights of free black people, and enforcement of European laws in the colonies was a spotty affair. I am more familiar with the enforcement of Spanish law in the American West than I am with the enforcement of French or Spanish law in the American South, but I know that for every official who wished to strictly enforce Spanish law in the Western colonies, there were many others who were willing to undermine the laws through turning a blind eye to illegal activity or even actively disobeying the laws when it met the ends of that official. From what I've been able to gather, the Code Noir, and later Spanish law, and even Louisiana state law, was often treated in a similar manner. The Louisiana Black Code, though it protected enslaved families in many ways, providing Sundays off along with other elements that appeared to make life easier for those in bondage, also allowed for punishment of slaves that was much harsher than what was allowed or customary in other parts of the United States. So it is an oversimplification at best, and at worst a blatant lie, to say that slaves were treated well in Louisiana. However, the existence of the Code Noir, Spanish law, and later Louisiana Black Codes created a cultural identity for the slave-owning people in Louisiana to see themselves as more civilized than those of other slave societies, including parts of the United States. And this belief, as uncoupled as it may have been from the reality of slavery in Louisiana, still serves as an element of how many white Louisianans, and many a tourist, views the past of New Orleans. Indeed, the Code Noir and subsequent laws allow many to romanticize pre-Civil War New Orleans as a place where glamorous plantation owners lived in harmony with happy slaves whom they treated as family. But the historical record shows something very different. Remember, the Louisiana Black Code allowed for brutal abuse, and that brutal abuse occurred routinely. Historian Jennifer Spear documented that abuse, beatings, rapes, and other mistreatment of slaves in New Orleans was common. Miles points out that, even with the laws intended to protect slaves, New Orleans was still the home of the largest slave market in the Americas, meaning that it was the theater on which the debasement of people played out, and many of these slaves were sent elsewhere where treatment of them, according to former slaves such as Harriet Jacobs, was every bit as horrifying and brutal as even the more sensationalized accounts of the LaLaurie house. Even when the slave owners and traders in New Orleans were not the direct cause of atrocity, they knowingly enabled it, and even caused it, elsewhere. Even with nominal rights, chattel slavery is still chattel slavery, and is brutal. So, perhaps the crowd gathered outside of the burning home that night in 1834 was angry because LaLaurie had truly stepped outside of acceptable bounds in her treatment of slaves. That is a possibility. But it is also a possibility that the anger directed at LaLaurie was the anger of people who were seeing a mirror held up to their own homes and their own livelihoods, and they didn't like what they saw. And they did what humans often do. Rather than learn the lesson and reform, they attacked the messenger. Although elements of the story of LaLaurie's home and the horrors it contained were written up in newspapers in the 1830s, it was in the writings of British anti-slavery advocate Henry Martineau that we received the prototype narrative of the house, copied to some degree or another by all who followed. 
Martin New described the slave chained to the stove in the kitchen, others chained and starving in the house, and still others kept in haggard state, and the story of the girl pushed off the roof, who she wrote was only eight years old. The one slave not suffering was the well-fed and in fine shape unnamed coachman, who, it seems to be implied, though not outright stated, was also Lalori's lover. Another component in Martineau's telling, Lalori not only abused and beat those she kept as property, but also her own children. Martineau intended the story to illustrate the evils of slavery, stating that such horrors not only could happen in slaveholding society, but, importantly, could not happen anywhere that did not allow slavery. However, Tia Miles shows that the story could be used to show how slavery in New Orleans was different in a way that justified the slaveholding classes. Lalori was, and often still is, portrayed as a deviant, a domineering woman who did not fit in with the meekness expected of her sex, who took a slave as a lover in a sin against the laws of God and man, who disrespected her husband and was sometimes rumored to have killed her first two husbands, who is not a good white woman, but a creole of ultimately unknown ethnicity. She was a monster, an abomination, not representative of the nice, respectable slave owners who honored the Code Noir and treated all whom they controlled humanely. And, of course, once her crimes were exposed, those respectable white citizens rose up against her. And so the story of Lalori could pull double duty. A story of the terrors that slavery allowed, or as a story of how the deviant was found out and put out so that the proper slave-owner relations could be restored and that harmony could rule in the end. But of course, the criminal complaint from the 1820s shows that LaLaurie's cruelty was not unknown or surprising, and the work of historians has found that such mistreatment of slaves was, in fact, fairly normal. From Martineau's description of the story, we get George Washington Cable's account in the 1880s. Cable largely preserved the tale told by Martineau, but used language evoking the presence of ghosts in the house, while also stating that he used the ghosts in a figurative sense, thus pushing forward the story of the haunted house while denying the existence of the supernatural. Of course, as mentioned earlier, a few years before Cable published his book, the 1885 historical sketchbook and guide to New Orleans had referred to the LaLaurie house as a haunted house, meaning that Cable got to have his ghost story based on an already present belief, even as he disavowed the very things that his own writing hinted at. The story of the haunted LaLaurie mansion, which, again, was actually a different house, simply built at the same address in the 1830s, shows up in 1945 within the folklore collection of the Louisiana Writers Project, and was featured in a 1946 book by Jean de Levine. It was de Levine who further sensationalized the story by adding in elements of medical experiments and turning LaLaurie into a mad scientist as well as a violent slaveholder. And, of course, the story kept evolving, ever-accumulating elements. Tia Miles documents that the ghost tours that she attended while writing her book included numerous references to Marie Laveau, often referred to as the voodoo queen of New Orleans, having some sort of involvement in LaLaurie's affairs, despite there being zero evidence of the two having had any connection to or dealings with each other. In addition, many of the current ghost tours are led by mediums who claim to have had contact with the ghosts of slaves still within the house and one even claims to have been followed home by the ghost of LaLaurie. For our purposes, or rather for the purposes of the story and the folkloric legend, in having someone that could easily be turned into an exaggerated monster, 
It allowed the 19th century advocates for slavery to put the evil off onto a deviant, someone who was not like them in temperament or, because she was a Creole, not like them ethnically, or so they would claim anyway. It also allows modern tourists who wish to romanticize elements of the pre-Civil War South to do so by relegating the true brutality to a small number of lunatics and monsters, when the people cast as villains were, in fact, not too different from others of their social class. One other thing worth noting, the story of the haunted LaLaurie house appears no later than the 1880s and was probably in circulation earlier, but it really seems to pick up steam during the 20th century, becoming a place that tourists would want to see. This corresponds with the development of voodoo as a draw for tourists looking for creepy thrills, as documented by Inesh Crockett. This particular tourist attitude towards voodoo often reduced the rather complex religious system to a set of sinister magical ideals, flattening voodoo and turning it into a gross caricature of itself. So one thing that should be said about the role that the story of LaLaurie's house plays in the tourism of New Orleans is that, while I think Miles is correct in that it can be used as a way of allowing people to place the realities of slavery aside by essentially blaming the evils of a society on one person who was chased away, it likely emerged during the late 19th and 20th century as one of many different strands of, for lack of a better way of putting it, spooky tourism in New Orleans. So it can serve to ease the guilt of those who romanticize the past and to reassure us that, whatever our flaws, at least we aren't monstrous like LaLaurie. But whatever functions it currently serves, there may have been no more intention behind the story than to simply make money off of tourists. The insistence of some tour guides that Marie Laveau was somehow tied to the LaLaurie house seems a continuation of the same trend, with Laveau's reputation as a practitioner giving her an unfairly creepy historical lookalike who would naturally have been connected, whether as an accomplice to or antagonist of Delphine LaLaurie. This appears to be a purely 20th century tourism-inspired connection between the two women with little to no historical reality. But Miles' description of the tours and guidebooks does indicate that it has gained traction. Also, Miles makes the argument that the telling of ghost stories at places where cruelty to slaves was the norm allows tourists to indulge in dark impulses and capitalize on the suffering of others while also excusing themselves from doing so. As Miles puts it, quote, By participating in the castigation of a vicious slave mistress with whom they have nothing in common, Tourists can distance themselves from her actions and relieve themselves of personal responsibility in indulging in scenes of abuse, racism, and torture. Unquote. Rather like I described in episode 17, which discussed a cursed dresser owned by a slave owner, Jacob Cooley, in creating a monster out of bits of history and folklore, we can make a villain out of Daphne LaLaurie and take a dark pleasure in the story of her deeds while also reassuring ourselves that we are nothing like her. But if you read enough on the history of slavery, one of the more unnerving truths that you start to realize is that many of the violent slaveholders, overseers, and others involved in the enslavement of humans likely were not sociopathic monsters, but people who had successfully put those that they enslaved into an outgroup that could be treated as they wished without any consideration for their suffering. In other words, what keeps us from being LaLaurie isn't purely our inherent character and our healthy psychology, but rather our cultural norms and mores. Yes, there were those who fought against slavery, even in the Deep South, but they were unusual people, while those who either accepted slavery or even gloried in it were fairly common. What is different isn't that we're humans and she's a monster, but rather 
that she was a member of a slave-owning class and we are not. This should bring us little comfort, because it means that, unless we are unfortunate enough to end up in a similar position in a similar society, we will never know if we would be a LaLaurie. Dr. Miles also questions the ethics of ghost tourism and people such as myself who produce podcasts and other content that touches on these stories, as opposed to those who take a more sober and serious approach to educating others on the history of slavery. While the people kept and tormented by LaLaurie and others like her are long dead, we nonetheless keep their memories alive and, to an extent, use their suffering for entertainment. What does that say of us? Of course, I will point out that I do try to use ghost stories to get people to think about how they view themselves and their society, to question their assumptions, and to ponder the past and how our views of the past reflect our behavior, ideals, and politics in the present. Does that absolve me of any guilt of getting a thrill from these types of stories as I do this? I don't know. And not knowing makes me uncomfortable. I'm not planning on ceasing production of this podcast, but as I've researched and written this episode, I have reflected on how I do what I do, my motives, and even the vocabulary that I use. Does the story of Lalori hold a mirror up to me? Do I like what I see? I don't know how to answer those questions but they're stuck in my brain now, and I will have to resolve them. If you have a weird tale, have had a strange experience of your own, or know of a bit of local lore that should get a wider audience, please feel free to contact me at ghostthropology at gmail.com. That's G-H-O-S-T-H-R-O-P-O-L-O-G-Y at gmail. You can find more at kmmamedia.com. Click on the Ghostthropology link and you can find episodes, transcripts, sources, and a link to support us through Patreon. Spooky!